In the Torah reading of the portion of Bahar, we learn the process of redeeming a Jew who sold himself into slavery to a non-Jew out of a state of destitution. A non-Jew who lives among the nation of Israel and who acquired wealth living among them. The slave himself or one of his relatives must refund the master the amount of money that would correspond to the years yet remaining to the Yevil year, to the Jubilee year, when the slave will go free, as is the law for all slaves in the Jubilee year. The verses in Torah read, after he is sold, he shall have redemption. One of his brothers shall redeem him. Or his uncle or his cousins shall redeem him. Or the closest other family relation should redeem him. Or if he can afford it, he should redeem himself. Based on the order of people, as they're listed in the verse, his brothers, an uncle or a cousin, any relative, the Tereskainen teaches that whoever is his nearest relative should take upon himself his redemption. There are a few issues here that we want to clarify. One is closest to oneself, surely. And if he's in a position to redeem himself, why isn't he listed first in this order in Torah, before a brother or an uncle or a cousin? Why is he listed last? The verse lists several types of relatives with the instruction that whoever is closest to him should be the one to redeem him. Assuming he has a father, why isn't his father on this list? In the laws of inheritance, one's father is the first to inherit from a son who passes before the deceased's brothers. But here there's no mention of a father. The same question is actually posed in the portion of Pinchas that speaks about the inheritance of land after one's passing. The Torah addresses this discussion when the daughters of Tzlavchad came to Mesha with the argument that they would not be able to inherit land when Mesha spoke to Hashem, and Hashem revealed to him the halacha, we have the laws in the portion of Pinchas. The verses teach, if a man dies and does not have sons, his portion should be transferred to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then to his brothers, or to his uncles, or to his nearest relations. No mention is made of a father inheriting this land, who surely would stand to inherit before his brothers. In this case, Nachmanides, the Ramban, responds to this saying that this discussion is about normal circumstances, as opposed to tragic circumstances. And in normal circumstances, a son does not pass before his father. The problem, however, with this answer is that in addition to the fact that what's under discussion is a matter of law, and all circumstances must be addressed, not just circumstances that aren't tragic, and not doing so leaves room for error about a father's status as inheritor, 
In our discussion, there's no concern about this state of tragedy. So surely the Torah should have included, and in fact headlined, with a father as the one first obliged to redeem his son. We can begin explaining this with the teaching of our sages in the Tractate of Kedushin that Rashi quotes in chapter 26, Perak Havav, in Pasuk Aleph, verse 1, in our Torah portion. In chapter 26, the Torah turns from the discussion of redeeming a Jewish slave to speaking of the prohibition of idol worship. This is addressed, says Rashi, to the one who has been sold as a servant or has sold himself as a servant to a non-Jew. He should not say, since my master has illicit relations, I'll be like him. Since my master worships idols, I'll also be like him. Since my master desecrates the Sabbath, I will also be like him. This is why, Rashi continues, these verses are stated here. The passages in this whole section are written in a meaningful order. At first, Torah admonishes us to observe the laws of Shemitah and of Yevil, the Jubilee. Then if one covets money and becomes suspect of unlawfully doing business with produce of the year of Shemitah, when the land must lie fallow, he will eventually become destitute and have to sell his personal belongings. If he does not repent, he will eventually have to sell his inheritance. If even then he does not repent, he will eventually have to sell his home. Rashi continues quoting, and if even then he does not repent, he will eventually have to borrow money with interest. Now, the later the scenario in this passage, the more severe it is. First, he sells his belongings, then his property, then his home, then even borrowing with interest, which is more severe than selling one's property. Thus, the passage continues accordingly. If he still does not repent, he will eventually have to sell himself first to his fellow Jew as a servant, and finally, if he has still not repented, not enough that he has to be sold to his fellow Jew, he will be forced to sell himself to a non-Jew. And worst of all, to serve in the capacity of the slave who tends to the house idle, chopping wood and drawing water for the ceremonies involved in its worship. This scenario is not just physical financial degradation, ultimately having to sell himself to a non-Jew. It speaks to an intense and consistent spiritual decline. Because a Jew selling himself to a non-Jew is against the laws of Torah, as one may not sell oneself to a non-Jew. And this causes one to calculate wrongly that since my master has illicit relations, so will I. He serves idols, so will I. I'll desecrate Shabbos like he does ultimately completely defying the commandment, Ki li for the children of Israel are my servants. A Jew's fall so far, selling himself to service idols, can happen only because he disconnected himself, forgetting, may God protect us, his heavenly Father, and thereby losing his love and fear of God. Hasidus explains it thusly. His chachma, his sole expression of faith, and all creative energy, which Kabbalah refers to as Av, Father, is concealed. This, the Altareb explains at length in chapter 19 in Tanya, is why a Jew can transgress the supernal will. His Chachma, which is higher than comprehension, and therefore can grasp Ein Saif, the unlimited, ungraspable, divine, making it the source 
for ungraspable, unexplainable faith is asleep. And so it cannot hear the resonance of what a sin does, how even the mildest sin separates him completely from his unity and alignment with God. Were he to experience this resonance, feel the sound, so to speak, of rupture and separation, akin to the rupture caused by idol worship, he would withstand the challenge, the draw to sin, with the same power and energy that each and every Jew, no matter his spiritual state, and as low as it may be, has to sacrifice his life for the sake of upholding the glory of God, just not to deny the oneness of God. Accordingly, we can understand the inner reason why Father is not even mentioned as the one to redeem the Jew who sold himself into slavery to the non-Jew, and why it's also not mentioned in the portion discussing the apportioned land. The experience of spiritual death, the wicked even in life are considered dead, and even just the descent in one's spiritual state is considered an experience of death, is a result of forgetting one's heavenly father and the revealed expression of chachma within one's soul, soul called, as we said, the father. It's a state of sleep, which the Talmud and Bracha says is a sixtieth of death. When one recalls the vitality of chachma, the incomprehensible and undefinable, God's honor is revealed. And when this revelation of God's transcendence illuminates one's nefesh, it enlivens the soul. There is no chance of spiritual death and no descent from one's spiritual state because the chachma in one's soul motivates the entire energy of a Jew's faith, and that is a faith that is beyond change. And so, just as the event of a Jew selling himself in servitude to a non-Jew is the story of an inner spiritual fall, so too is the event of freeing oneself an inner spiritual journey. Torah speaks of this freedom as Yeula Tiyeloi, he shall have redemption. Relatives closest to him must free him, and the Torah promises with this choice of wording that he will be freed. Even if his relatives don't free him, he will be freed in the Yevil, in the Jubilee year. Because as the verse continues, Kili b'nei Yisrael avadim, avdihem, a Jew is a servant of God first and only. This means a spiritual redemption from a spiritual sleep and the resulting lowly situation one may have found themselves in. At Matan Torah at Sinai, every Jew became a divine servant, a servant of the divine, forever, and no one can ever take this away from him. Even if he goes against God's will, selling himself to service idols, his connection to impurity is no more than something external and superficial and not his essential self. His essential self cannot be altered, and that's why he shall have redemption. This also further clarifies the connection between the conclusion of the Torah portion to the beginning of the Torah portion of Bahar, which tells us that God spoke to Moshe on Mount Sinai. These words introduce the entirety of Bahar, it's because we come from Sinai, when we became divine servants, first, always, and only, 
even after an unfortunate spiritual decline, heaven forbid, we are assured we shall have redemption. This also serves to explain the deeper reason for Rashi's nuanced and lengthy explanation. And to the point he makes in explaining the words, to an idol of the family of a non-Jew, as he becomes an attendant to it, he does not worship it as a deity, but to chop wood and draw water. We might ask what Rashi bases this on, that he doesn't worship the idol. If it's based on the premise that a Jew may not sell himself to deify an idol, he isn't allowed to sell himself to service it either, or for that matter, to sell himself to a non-Jew. So Rashi is assuring us that even a Jew who has fallen so low to the ultimate level of low wouldn't because he simply couldn't sell himself in service of an idol. He hasn't forgotten God, heaven forbid. He is just asleep. The chachma in his soul hasn't become void. It is just in a state of sleep. And therefore, when his faith in the oneness of God is tested, something that agitates the very essence of his soul, the chachma of his soul, it awakens and prevents him from stumbling in this challenge. Even beyond that, not even an external or superficial thought or superficial statement, and not even a superficial action that would negate a faith in God's oneness. So a Jew can sell himself into the service of worship of an idol, even if it's without any emotional faith in God. The lowest a Jew can fall when his chachma is asleep, in other words, when he has no choice in it, is to sell himself in service of an idol's needs to cut wood and draw water. His facet of memory, the chachma of the soul of the one who sold himself is asleep, and he isn't experiencing self-mastery. He's enslaved to a non-Jew, and he cannot release himself. A captive cannot redeem himself from prison. Rather, his redemption must come from above, from a place that transcends him, via others who are not similarly enslaved, which is why the first to redeem him are relatives, those closest, as God is close to us, close like his brother or his uncle, or close like Mashiach is close, or perhaps he alone does have sufficient merits. These are divine awakenings that serve to drag him out of his lowly state. But of course, the goal isn't for him to need others to awaken this within him, but for him to awaken and to reveal his own inner light as a divine servant. And so once redeemed, he of his own volition can never return to such a lowly descent. Much like it is in the counterpart of the physical domain, the truest form of assistance one can give to a poor person is to give him independence of others' assistance. Hence the inner message of the conclusion, he reaches out and redeems himself. Redeeming him via family is all about empowering him to experience self-redemption, which is why the order of relatives listed is closest first, because they will reveal first his internal and then also the external abilities so that he can redeem himself. The closer the relationship is with a quote-unquote relative, 
the greater the impact and deeper the internalized effect on rousing the servant. But why the spiritual fall to begin with? How does this happen to us? A possible reason is found in the beginning of the Torah portion when God instructs us in the commandment of Shemitah, resting the land every seventh year when we come to the land of Israel, entering a civilized place of habit and order requires behavior and interaction with natural order, like working the land for six years. We were coming from the desert where natural order was suspended and we lived on miracles, bread from the heavens, water from the well of Miriam, garments cleaned and pressed miraculously and clothes that grew as we grew. There is certainly an opportunity in entering the land to fall, which is why at the beginning of the portion, we are encouraged with the understanding that we are coming from Sinai and with the power of Sinai, and not only then will we remain whole, we will purify and elevate the very land itself, turning the land of Canaan into the land of Israel. There, until the land rests, a complete rest for God. And the possibility of a Jew in the land of Israel selling himself to service an idol in Israel will become completely uprooted. Instead, the land will rest a rest for God, for it will be revealed as his land.